Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley. I'm Mick Garrison. This is the Fun Size Postmortem AMA where you can ask me anything. And it's been quite a week this week, and we'll get into that a little bit later. First, I want to offer up, we have a brand new email address for your questions. It's askmickanything at gmail.com. And Joe and I will go over those every time. And Joe Russo, producer Joe, how are you? I I am doing well, Mick. Uh, in in awe of your uh, the week you have had, uh, and excited <laughs> to dig into it at the uh, at the end of the episode. I know there's a lot of people who want to hear you talk about uh, your little viral moments on on the interwebs, and uh, <laughs> but I figure we'll do some uh, some questions first. What do you think? I think it's a great idea, and we may as well make use of that new uh, email address anyway. Yes, all three of these questions that we're going to jump into are from the new email address. Uh, so, so we will be moving forward, fielding questions through social media and through uh, the new Ask Mick Anything Gmail. So, all right. Mr. Zeno writes, Mick very visibly spends a lot of time flitting around in planes and striking poses in foreign climates. <laughs> the question is, for somebody who travels so frequently, what do you pack? It would seem to favor traveling light, but how light can you travel? Do you depend on getting stuff on the far end, or do you assume nothing will be available when you touch down? Well, a rule of thumb for me, because I, I have traveled an awful lot around the world to festivals and things like that, uh, has always been to carry as light as possible, be practical if you're gone for a week. It's easy to do that in a carry-on and know that anything you really need is going to be at the other end of your flight. Uh, you can always pick that up. I broke my own rule just a couple of weeks ago going to the UK and brought a week's worth in, and I thought, you know, I have a plane change in Dublin, so I think I'd better uh, just check it and let it go straight through to me. Well, I made my connection in Dublin, but my suitcase didn't, and I didn't get it for another three and a half days. Oh, so um, I did have to avail myself of the local shops uh, to to. Did, uh, did, you, did you find anything uh, exciting to wear while you were while you were, you know, at large? I wasn't looking for exciting. I was looking <laughs> for utilitarian. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Oh my gosh, that's it's so frustrating when you when your luggage doesn't make it, especially when you're abroad. I mean, that's like doubly frustrating. Um, yeah. And I was in a small town, not a big city, which makes a difference. Plus at that time, you had to be COVID tested to get back into the US within 24 hours of your trip. So it was, it made complications, but everything worked out. Everything was fine. I had more than I needed when the suitcase got to me three and a half days later. But I just highly recommend that you, if you can, pack uh, a, a carry-on and, and don't check it. Particularly, check it if you are not having any stopovers. If you have a direct flight, then feel free to check it because I don't see how they're going to mess it up that way. They may find a way because the airlines are really in a state of discombobulation right now. Um, but uh, carry-on is always safest and uh, I need to follow my own rules every time now. 
You uh, and you had not just one trip, but but two. You literally went back to back out to New Orleans right after. That's right. I I came home for two days and went to New Orleans for the Overlook Film Festival, and that believe me, I packed light for that one. Not <laughs> only was it a carry on, but it was a backpack. So uh, a backpack with wheels, mind you, but a backpack nonetheless that I could put overhead. How were both of the festivals since we're talking about it? Really terrific. Um, the, the the festival uh, in the UK, uh, in Scarborough, was tiny but unbelievably wonderful uh, because it was so intimate. There were a bunch of people, a couple of people I knew from face to face, and several people who'd been Facebook friends. And, um, uh, you know, there were uh, several people who I became really closer friends with. I was friends with before, but then being in person, Grady Hendrix is one of those people. I'd met him once in person briefly before, and he'd been on the show over Zoom, but we spent a lot of time together there. Mark Morris, uh, Stephen Volk, the British uh, screenwriter, he and I had done a couple of projects together that never panned out, but we'd never met in person, only over Skype or Zoom. And, uh, you know, these friendships bloomed uh, because we were able to spend a lot of time with one another. And then it's always great to go to the Overlook because I have very good friends who run it, filmmakers who show up, um, Landon Zackheim, who's one of the organizers of the festival, uh, and I are friends. Axel Carolyn was there shooting uh, a couple of TV shows. Um, so it was a really fun experience, and I got to see a handful of movies, whereas the one in the UK was much more book-oriented, which was unusual for me. Normally, it's film festivals. This one had more authors than it did filmmakers. But they did give you a uh, very nice award, right? Um, they did indeed. And, uh, you know, it, it was just uh, not really an award, but I was guest of honor. Ah, and right. yes, so yes. It, it, it was really great. And Scarborough was a, a wonderful town I'd never been to before. It's a beautiful, small seaside town in the UK. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, the ability to to have friendships and relationships and 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 be able to see parts of the world that you would not otherwise see because of of the work that we do is is an incredible perk and something that for which I am always grateful. I I will not to belabor your your festival travels too much more but uh there was a, a very funny moment in the uh the king cast uh screening of sleepwalkers uh when they came out to introduce the uh the movie uh that made some social media rounds uh where the guys uh oh, yeah. homage to you <laughs> yeah uh the guys came out wearing long white wigs you know they looked like uh elderly zz top and maybe that's <laughs> what i look like but uh, it was it was a nice tribute and uh i uh, they had warned me they were going to do it in advance oh good i was gonna say i hope so <laughs> no but the guys uh, were very respectful, and, and it the seemed like the uh, the crowd got quite a kick out of it, which is which is <laughs> yeah. great. It um, went great. Well, you know, you you get you get uh, recognized for your hair. Um, I was back here, back home, going to Monster Palooza, where you were, you know, very missed. Uh, but but uh, I got recognized for my voice. Really, um, producer yes. Joe voice. Yes, yes. Somebody uh, heard me talking. 
and asked if I was the Joe from Postmortem. Uh, so that That's was awesome. Pretty, that was pretty surreal. Um, you need a Postmortem T-shirt that says Producer Joe. Yes. Well, you know, we've we've been on dread forever about T-shirts, so maybe it's time to start banging that drum again. But yeah, uh, you guys listening. <laughs> that was the first time uh, I think I've been recognized by my voice. So that was that was pretty wild. But uh, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. All right. Next question. Vince writes, I read an interview with Joseph Stefano, who mentioned that a well-known actress was in negotiations to play Norman's mother in Psycho 4. When she turned down the role, Olivia Hussey was asked. The other actress then changed her mind and agreed to do it, but it was too late, as Hussey had already signed on. Who was the other actress that had been pursued? Well, in all respect to Joe Stefano, who I have great admiration for, and may he rest in peace, no such thing happened. Uh, The only person we offered the role to was Olivia Hussey. She came in and everyone fell in love. Everyone just thought she nailed it. Uh, It was great. We did audition other actresses for it. And there were some really great people and it was a difficult choice, but not so difficult that it overrode everybody's first choice being Olivia Hussey. And I could not be happier. No one could have done a better job of playing Norma Bates than she did. Oh, I completely agree. I, I was I was surprised when I, I read that there was even a suggestion of someone else. But uh, I don't even know who uh, Joe could have been thinking of at the time because no one else came close to to. Uh, snagging that role yeah no, that's great to hear because she really really was perfect casting so uh conrad writes hi nick and joe i have a keen interest in the classic horror films from the silent era the corman aip period to the 1960s euro horror boom i am based on the east coast in canada and wish to direct a sci-fi horror hybrid short film as a calling card and seeking advice Curious to know both of your opinions if I attempt such a project utilizing such inspirations from that era, say Mario Bava-ish cinematography as one example, whether my film would appeal to today's horror film enthusiasts, would I have to portray extreme violence, graphic bodily harm, and jump scares to win over contemporary audiences, or would relying on traditional pulpy storyline with old-time chills and scares guarantee a failure? Well, it won't guarantee a failure and it won't necessarily open every door, but all you don't need massive violence and explosions of viscera against the wall. Um, all you need is really good storytelling and something that feels fresh and original and has a polish to it, something that shows you know what you're doing. More than anything, your job as a filmmaker is to engage the audience. No matter when the era it's set, Uh, no matter what the subject matter, if you can't engage an audience, you have failed in the number one mission, which is to communicate with an audience, to tell a story that people are eager to have told. Um, It's, that's the whole thing. It doesn't matter if it's old fashioned, you know, all Mm -hmm. the colors of the dark is, is a modern day tribute to Mario Bava and, and the kinds of movies he was making in the the uh, primary color lighting that he would use in the day and all that. Um, You know, the sixth sense back in 1999, uh, there's not a drop of blood spilled in that movie, but it's incredibly tense and 
frightening and suspenseful. Uh, and you could do a movie like that in 2022 and still captivate an audience. And that's the whole thing. It's, it's your ability to build tension, to build the desire for the audience to connect and, and follow the story that you set, put them on the road with you and make them eager to reach the end of that road. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Like, and, and, and two things to consider. One, you know, Sixth Sense is a great example, but also two, I think modern horror audiences they tend to like to embrace throwbacks. I can think of uh, one director who very readily wore his love for Rosemary's Baby and The Wicker Man on his sleeve uh, with Hereditary and Midsommar and Ari Aster, and people went gaga for what old is new again. You well, know? And, and like Ty West and X, which is yeah. very definitely a throwback to 1974 Toby Hooper classic, Texas yep. Chainsaw Massacre. Absolutely. So I, I think, you know, as long as you can find a kind of new and, and fresh perspective to, like Mick said, keep people engaged uh, through. I think he's talking about an even older fashion, older style stories, but it's oh, the storytelling. It's the storytelling. It's uh, technique. You know, you can do a tribute to times past as long as it feels contemporary enough to engage the audience. Yeah. And I would also say, you know, uh, obviously, like, uh, you know, I my first feature was a, a thriller that ultimately ended up coming out on Lifetime. Um, you know, and a lot of our horror fans of uh, postmortem horror critics that, that follow the show, you know, reviewed that movie. And I, I very remember one of the reviews saying, you know, they were expecting buckets of blood from me, uh, but, <laughs> but, but what they got was a story and they found themselves liking their first Lifetime movie ever. Uh, so, you know, I think, again, it comes down to... Um, it, you don't have to have buckets of blood. It's about having a good story with compelling characters and, and telling it in an engaging way. All those things they teach you in screen or screenwriting classes, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, yeah, have confidence in, in your, uh, you know, the things you love, people will love them too, as long as you can find a, an engaging way to, uh, to, con to convey them. Uh, absolutely. And I wish you good luck. Yes. All right, Mick. Uh, social media, Twitter star, Mick Garris. <laughs> I was, uh, I was listening to one of my, my favorite podcasts, one of the biggest podcasts, uh, around on the ringer network yesterday, uh, the big picture. And they're talking about, you know, Buzz Lightyear's new movie and, and such. And then all of a sudden they start talking about Mick Garris going to see the thing at fathom events. So, so Mick, what happened this week? Well, things kind of blew up in a good way. Um, I went last Sunday to see the 40th anniversary Fathom Events uh, showing of John Carpenter's The Thing. This is a movie I love to death. I worked on it. I did the making of documentary. Uh, I was on set up in British Columbia uh, in the stages, sound stages on Universal's lot. Uh, and I, I feel a real connection to that movie. And so they're advertising 40th anniversary. You think they're going to treat it with respect. Right. That it deserves. And right. it's 1982. And there are 4K DCPs available to theaters to show because they've been shown in lots of theaters like Alamo Drafthouse and other places over the years, right. even in recent years. 
Well, my experience was fairly terrible. And let me read to you uh, what I posted on our social medias and that I sent to the head of publicity at Fathom Events. I just got back from seeing John Carpenter's masterpiece at the Fathom Events 40th anniversary screening at the Universal CityWalk AMC. And I will never ever see a Fathom event again. And I recommend that you avoid them like the plague. First of all, the film was shot in the 2.35 to one widescreen aspect ratio, but was shown in 1.85 to one, literally cutting out a third of the film. The picture was soft focus, low resolution, and the digital image was out of registration. So all objects were rimmed in red on one side and blue and on the other. Also, all movement all the way through the movie stuttered like trying to watch Netflix with a really bad Wi-Fi signal. Fathom events and the theaters that run them should be ashamed of themselves and the outrageously low quality programs they run. This could have been an amazing time revisiting one of the classics on the big screen and share it with an enthusiastic audience. The power of Carpenter's genius movie carried us through, but I remain disgusted by this ripoff. Now, I expected a handful of quality geeks like myself who- Yeah, like, you know, like me and Chris Price like the post, yeah. Yeah, cineasts. <laughs> yeah, exactly, sure. Cineasts yeah. uh -huh. who, who really care. And you know, most people at that screening, I don't think even noticed. But it kind of exploded. It became our first ever viral moment. And uh, we got tons and tons of feedback. And the miraculous thing that I never anticipated was Fathom Events apologized and said that when they did their next screening, which was the following Wednesday, they would make sure everything was right, that they never want to project something that, to disappoint their audience. Well, Apparently, a bunch of those screenings, they still did the DVR. Still had a bunch of issues, yeah. And yeah. that they didn't even show the whole 15 minutes in. They decided they couldn't do it, and they shut it down and gave refunds. But most of the screenings on Wednesday did use a DCP, which has the potential of being the very best way you could project a movie uh, of all. Right. And people had a really great experience. And I'm just so thrilled and... Uh, humbled by the fact that we had something to do with making that happen. And, and it's just, it's just a lesson that don't settle, don't take it. You know, if somebody promises you a great film going experience and they deliver something that is intentionally cheap and crappy and they have the potential of showing it at its highest quality and choose not to, because they're cheap and they think you won't notice, don't let them get away with it. Yeah, it was it was pretty remarkable. I mean, it was, uh, you know, you really touched a nerve because, you know, and I even made me think back to my own experience uh, with Fathom last fall when when I saw the Evil Dead uh, and, you know, for for that movie's 40th anniversary. And, uh, you know, I thought the quality was surprisingly low. My assumption had been at the time, maybe it was just, you know, old film prints or or oh, no. you know or or just you know it was a low budget movie you know the thing yeah. is obviously a, a a much more glamorous studio movie uh so you know i i just attributed to that but no it sounds like what they do is well let me tell you exactly what they do yes they please. use they use a dish network hopper dvr the same one you use in your house 
um, that has 1080i, which is half of 2K. 2K is the minimum quality you want to use for resolution projecting in a theater. A Blu-ray is 2K, and then 4K, of course, is double that. But at 1080i, which is not even 1080p, which most DVRs and satellite and, and cable companies use for their yeah. high def. Um, so, but the problem with that was it not only was on a cheap DVR, a household item, not a professional item, but when they sent it out to theaters, they said, check it at 60 times speed to make sure you've got the whole movie. So you just run through it. You can't tell that it's stuttering all the way through because they did it wrong. And the wow. satellite feed was a piece of crap. They have always had the ability to give them a DCP to run extremely high quality, but they've just cheaped out. And the other thing is, though I wrote their head of publicity, I've never heard back from. Ah, well, they've, they've, they've certainly gotten back in other ways, because the story was picked up by Variety and IndieWire and Bloody Disgusting and Joe Blow. And I mean, yeah, so like it, it, it's not the first viral moment for postmortem because we've certainly made headlines and waves before, but I think it was our first mainstream moment. Right. Uh, you know, well, mainstream and that it had an effect. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. I mean, it really does, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, why do you waste your time tweeting? Because no one ever listens. Well, someone listened this time. Like you, you really picked at a real scab uh, that I think people, look, it's, it's, we get very lucky that we live in Los Angeles and there's lots of, uh, you know, repertoire, repertory screenings. Um, and, you know, we're spoiled in that way. But like a lot of people around the country don't get those opportunities very often. And the idea of a company providing that service is great, but not when they do it the wrong way and on the cheap. And they have the technology to do it right, no matter how small the cinema. Any movie theater that has digital projection, and these days that's 100% of all movie theaters, yeah. has the ability to show a DCP of high quality. And those DCPs are digitally copied, so they are exactly the same high quality as any other DCP. Yeah, no, and it was it was, it was very funny to watch, you know, other uh, theater chains like Alamo throw some shade <laughs> at Fathom uh, over over these missteps. Um, that was pretty great, especially because they they invited me to come see it in August when when they play it in their theater, and actually have invited me to introduce the movie while it's playing there, which is pretty exciting. So you know, mark your calendars, Angelinos, uh, to go catch Mick introduce the thing. Um, but you know, I. I wonder, Mick, part of me always kind of like when this ha started happening, I do wonder if there was one of the reasons you reacted um, the way you did is, and you kind of hinted at it already, I mean, there must be a little bit of protectiveness over this movie for you. I mean, here it is turning 40 and you were, you were there, you saw the labors that this crew and John Carpenter took to make this movie out in the freezing cold. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah, well, this was not an easy movie to make, and it did not go as planned in terms of schedule and everything because of the complications of creating entirely new technologies that Rob Bottin did in his early 20s. Yeah. You know, these were things that nobody had ever gone to the extent that he did in creating practical uh, creature effects and makeup effects and things like that. And they did go out to 
a glacier in British Columbia and build the station, the exteriors and some interiors on at the foot of a glacier in British Columbia and took three hours bus ride each direction to and from the set and wow. lived on a logging barge right. off, of, off of the coast, you know, near Alaska, the, the border of Alaska and British Columbia. And I stayed on that, that barge yeah. uh, when I was doing it. But, you know, uh, there's so much work that goes into it. And when you say you're celebrating a classic movie's 40th anniversary, and then you treat it like a piece of garbage that nobody cares about, yeah. it's insulting. And, and to be able to stand up for it and to have have the reaction that we did, where they went back and apologized and, and made good on it. and to be called a hero by John Carpenter is pretty humbling. You know? It's pretty cool. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, look, a lot of, of pain and suffering went into, you know, making that movie and to, to literally cut a third of it out, uh, yeah. you know, is, 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 is beyond insulting to the movie. And also too, like when you think about it in a historical context, you know, the thing didn't really have a great theatrical run originally. Like it's a movie that, that built its reputation over time. So to have it come back and then be shown poorly on top of it is, is, is doubly disappointing, I think. Yeah, people forget that it was released the same within the same month or two uh, of E.T., the extraterrestrial by Universal, same studio. Everybody wanted a cuddly ET. They did not want a ferocious ET. And, uh, it really was. I mean, just to to go back in time for a minute, June nineteen eighty two. Like, what a month for movies. I mean, literally between Memorial Day and the and the end of June, you had. Uh, Poltergeist Rocky... was June fourth, and ET yeah. was June eleventh. Yeah, you had you had you had Rocky three, you had Wrath of Khan, you had Poltergeist, you had ET, you had The Thing, and you had Blade Runner, all within a month of each other. Yeah. Uh, a pretty remarkable month of of movies. Yeah, they um, talk about nineteen thirty nine being the best year, but uh, nineteen eighty two was pretty awesome. There's a there's a really strong case for for eighty two. Uh, so yeah, no, it's, it's so, but I, you know, I was very lucky the, 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 when I got to see the thing on the big screen for the first time, it was at the Egyptian, uh, you know, right. and, and so it was, it was beyond fest. It was perfect. It was a yeah. perfect screening. Uh, well, it's so amazing to be working at universal at the time and to be able to see it in 70 millimeter in the in-house screening room, the Alfred Hitchcock theater at universal and at, theaters around town where there were actually 70 millimeter prints and it was stunning. I I would love to someday see it in 70 millimeter and hopefully someone other than Fathom makes that a reality. <laughs> uh, well, Mick, uh, congrats on, on, you know, saving the day for a lot of people for that second screening. Uh, you know, thank you for bringing uh, attention to this issue. Hopefully it will, you know, Fathom will think twice moving forward before pulling another stunt like this. Well, the people have spoken. That's the yes. important thing. And I, I'm just delighted that I was able to help give voice to some people who, who might have felt like uh, howling out in the wilderness. And, uh, and, you know, to wrap up another AMA, uh, you are John Carpenter's hero this week. So uh, <laughs> I'll be the thing's hero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we, we thank you. John Carpenter, thanks you. Uh, the fans, thank you. And, uh, you know, we look forward to another AMA uh, a couple weeks from now.
And that new email address for your questions is askmcanything at gmail.com. And we would really love to get your reactions to the show. We'd love for you to rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. And you can send still send questions on social media uh, to Mick uh, at Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram, or you can send them to lowly old me at Joe Russo tweets and at Joe Russo Graham respectively. All right. Thanks, Joe. And thank you everybody for coming out to, in support of the thing and helping to turn that massive folder all around. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.